Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and we try to understand what they're talking about. I'm Matt Brown, with me is Chris Kavanagh. And Chris, first of all, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Now, it's come to our attention that some revision is in order. Certain people who shall remain nameless have let it be known via the slack-jawed idiotic comments (laughs) 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 yes, that they may not fully understand the nuance and the great deal of thought that has gone into the science of gurometry. They think, you know, you probably have your own examples, but for uh, the one we often come across is that people will say, oh, well, you're covering so-and-so, right? You're out to get them now, are you? They're a guru, are they? People think that we call people gurus if we don't like them. Mm. And if we do like people, then they're not gurus. It's a pejorative, in other words, which it kind of is. But that's not what it's about, is it, Chris? No, it's not. And it's unbelievable, Matt, because on the 9th of January 2021, we released an episode called Calibrating the Grometer. Shockingly, people are not going back to refer (laughs) to that, that episode, nor... Are they looking at the various Google document drafts that litter the internet for various academic papers that we are writing on this concept? But yes, there's misperceptions abounding about the science of gurometry and more precisely the way that we are approaching gurus in the podcast and what we mean by it. And we are not saying that everybody has to agree with our definitions or how we approach it, but we are going to tell you them so that you stop asking us. And (laughs) I know it's not going to work. I know the comments will still come, but hopefully this will be a new 2023 reference point where I can fob off various people to say, go check that. We talked about it for... 40 minutes to an hour, and that will resolve it all. And they'll come back and say, well, thank you. That was very informative. Yes, I have learned and I, I, I promise to mend my ways in future. That will be the response. So, Chris, let's start with the elementary things before we get into the different dimensions of the grometer. What, what a grometer is. What a grometer what, is, Matt. Yeah, that will become clear. But what's a guru, Chris? What is a guru? What do we mean? Yeah. So, there's a word guru from, I think, Sanskrit and Pali, from around the Indian region. That means like teacher or one with specialist knowledge in a particular field, right? But that particular understanding of guru has expanded in usage. So that now guru refers to generally someone who has special knowledge and insight that they can provide to their followers, usually from mastery of some particular technique or information. And there are other related concepts, things like shamans, oracles, prophets, soothsayers, so on. These are figures that are often more associated with pre-modern societies, though they exist and are popular in many contemporary societies. There's lots of differences there. And as an anthropologist, I'm interested in those two. But the through line is the ability to deal with the unseen world, 
right? Yeah. The supernatural forces or magical or spiritual forces. And I think it's fair to say that in most cases, gurus are seen within that oeuvre, right? That yeah. they, they're giving paths and guidances on the right way to do things and also how to marshal mystical energies and forces. Yeah, how to lay meaning over the world, provide some guidance for your life. That's the traditional notion of a guru. Now, you and I coined the very catchy term of secular guru, and it really encompasses a kind of a proposition, which is perhaps this role, which we associate with the kind of magical and spiritual beliefs of pre-modern societies, and supposedly would have no role in our scientific, technocratic, rationalist, neoliberal world that we live in today. We propose that maybe there is still this role for a guru, but they just clad themselves in a different garb because people still have the same urge to find meaning in the world. They still want to make sense of everything. They want guidance and solutions for their moral, personal, political, interpersonal dilemmas. And, uh, you know, for the gurus, the modern ones, just like the old-fashioned ones, there's strong motivations to lean into this role. You know, you get recognition, you get attention, you get respect, and ultimately you're going to get financial resources as well. And I think another thing that they have in common in terms of the personal qualities that make a good guru, what you needed to have in the olden days was to, you had to be a performer. You needed to be charismatic. You had to be engaging. You had to put on a good show. These are the kinds of people that made good gurus, and that was true then. And I guess we propose that the same thing tends to be true now, like almost preternatural levels of self-confidence and self-assurance and having that ability to project authority, project wisdom, and send people the clear message that you have the capacity for unique insights, you're in connection with forces beyond their ken, and they need to listen to you. And there's one nuance I would add here, Matt, because you as an ill-informed psychologist might have made the mistake of thinking that magic and spirituality had retreated from modernity. But anthropologists have had your number for decades pointing out that this is not the case, that even in the most overtly secularized society, people are very enamored with spiritual frameworks and approaches. Religion still exists flourishes in the alternative uh, spirituality space in many contemporary societies. But even when you look back at the age of rationalism and Victorian gentlemen striding the globe, the theosophists and various esoteric arts were uh, prized and people had interest in. So I mentioned this just to say that modernity did not do away with religion, though there is, I think, a lot more validity to the secularization thesis than another set of sociologists argued. We don't need to get into the academic debates around that topic. But the crucial distinction, I think, from the concept that we are interested in is that most of those figures still professed a fascination and an interest with esoteric spiritual Art. The gurus that we're interested in, they don't do that. What they lean in more is expertise in secular topics. This can be philosophy, it can be politics. It often is science, 
just for an illustration, Brett Weinstein links most of his views to an evolutionary lens. And they might have sympathy and interest for religious topics. Like Jordan Peterson has a clear religious impulse, but in a lot of occasions, he channels that into a symbolic interpretation and he still links it to his evolutionary framework about competence hierarchies and his Jungian psychology expertise, right? His clinical expertise in psychology. So that's the part which marks them out is that they grind their expertise, not in the ability to manipulate esoteric forces or commune with the ancient masters, but with their secular knowledge of mm. science and psychology and politics and these kind of topics. Yeah. Now, it might sound like a bit of a contradiction, but you know, a lot of them do lean into woo, for want of a better term. They're into strange diets. They're like Jordan Peterson. They see the mystical influence of the word of God everywhere. And I think like for me, I see it as like the scientific grounding, while certainly there is a kind of rationalization, like the appeal to the heart is in that old-fashioned magical kind of sense, revealed truth and rhetoric, but they certainly do frame it as being informed by logic and science and philosophy and all of these secular things. The final thing I guess we've got to say is, it's another difference, I guess, with the traditional gurus is like in a traditional society, like there was not a mainstream media. <laughs> there was, there generally wasn't institutions in the sense that we know them. Mm, yes, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I know what you were thinking, but I'm not saying that, of course. My point is, is that the shamans or the gurus, the spiritual leaders, whatever, in a traditional format, they were the authority. They weren't in competition or reacting to or rebelling against some sort of mainstream thing out there generally. Um, uh, I, well, you, uh, yeah. wait, wait, is, is there Discord? <laughs> is there Discord? This is meant to be an explainer, Chris. Yeah, no, I all I would say is like we had the cognitive anthropologist Manveer Singh on and he was talking about shamanism as this recurrent cultural technology and an early developing profession, right? Because there's lots of need to manage uncertainty in pre-modern societies and also modern societies. People always want to manage uncertain outcomes. And if you believe that uncertain outcomes are being impacted by unseen forces, then somebody who can marshal those forces to give you better outcomes is a figure that's useful in a society, right? So, you know, if your crops are potentially destroyed by the weller, somebody that can help you control the weller to lessen the possibility of that is valuable. Now, whether they can actually do it or not, it doesn't matter. The existence of that niche is a cultural evolutionary attractor position, right? Now, I say that, Matt, because in those cases, like you said, an early developing profession, and of course, there's many other types of roles in society, but you could say, well, there would have been societies without institutionalized doctrinal religions. And so shamans and charismatic religious specialists or spiritual specialists can go unencumbered. But the caveat I wanted to add was, even in the case where you do have competition, where you have institutionalized re religions and you have doctrinal traditions coming in, you often do have a competition between priests and orthodox interpretations and these more dramatic practitioners, but, but also within the tradition, 
you have this dynamic where there's a constant push and pull between mm-hmm. figures who lean more toward idiosyncratic, dramatic, charismatic interpretations and those which lean more towards orthodox textual dogma. And in both cases, you can have splintering and you can have little flowerings and you can have people coming back into the traditions and reinvigorating them. And you just need to look at modern religion to see that you have charismatic individuals who perform like guru-ish rules and you have very serious priests and theologians and so on. So it's just to say, I think that gurus inhabit all societies and all areas, including traditional religion, New Age religion, non-doctrinal religions, and secular modern society. So our argument, I believe we're in accord on this, is that it's a recurrent social role, and we are looking at a modern manifestation of it, which has some distinguishing characteristics, but which is part of a broader category that mm-hmm. uh, that has those features I just outlined. Yes, we're in accord, we're in accord. I guess the only thing that's new is that the kinds of secular gurus that we look at at the moment do seem to operate in the shadow of mm. the in- institutions, mainstream media, the, the blue church of the academy, as they yeah. like to call it. And as you said, they don't draw their epistemic and moral authority with reference to like an orthodox consensus uh, literature or whatever, but rather with reference to not their spiritual powers or their connection with God, but their polymathic powers, their unique intellectual capabilities. So just in that sense, that's I think is a little bit new that they, I think they operate in the shadow of modernity. And it's those fissures and paranoias and alienation that's going on in modernity. And secular gurus can capitalize on that. So I'm just foreshadowing, Chris, our theme of anti-establishmentarianism. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, one thing I think to mention here as well, and this is something which people always struggle with, is that when you are defining a category or a tribe, for example... There, there can be individuals who do not fit neatly into the kind of prototypical figure, right? So you might set a bunch of characteristics that are defining of the group or the kind of person that would be in the group. And then you will find that various people related to a group, you know, embody those features more or less. But there is no group where there's no divergence amongst members and everyone is a prototypical example because that would be uh, Borg or something. And even in the Borg, they had that guy Hugh, right? <laughs> and so, the, yeah, the humans don't operate like that. And categories, our conceptual categories, do not operate like that. So when we are talking about secular gurus, we're talking about a family resemblance category, which means Mm -hmm. there are recurrent features that mark out the group, but it does not mean that those features will not be found in any other groups or that you can say, okay, when you have four out of 10 of these, you are not a guru. When you have six out of 10, you are a guru. It is a spectrum and people can be in multiple categories. This is sometimes hard for people and they think that that makes it like, oh, it's so, so wishy-washy, it's so strange. But you do this every day of your life. You operate in this function. I am a man. I am Irish. 
and I, I'm a person with brown hair, right? Like these are all overlapping categories. And, mm. you know, that's not hard, but people don't get it. And I can be a fan of whatever football team and live in Japan and teach psychology and so on and so forth. Yeah. Now, and on a purely technical note, we cover various figures. Not all of them score highly on the Grometer. Not all of them are prototypical. <laughs> That's right. So the mere fact that we're covering someone does not entail that we think they're a guru. It entails that we're going to check them out, listen to what they have to say, have some fun talking about them, and maybe rate them on the Grometer as well. So I'd add just a little note there as well, Matt, that part of the reason that this developed was when we were initially covering people, we were basing our approach on this secular guru concept that we had, but we covered people that were suggested and that we were interested in, but we very quickly noticed that people were varying to their degrees to which they fit the template. And by us covering them on a show called Decoding the Gurus, there's an implicit suggestion that the people that we cover are gurus of some stripe or another. And we developed the grammar, which we'll talk about in more detail, but before we get there, just we developed a system in order to say that it's a spectrum and there are people who are closer to this concept and people who are farther away. And by scoring them on these characteristics that we identified, we can say that at least by our lights, this person comes closer to the kind of guru that we were originally discussing. But that means that we can cover anyone. We could cover people who are very bad fits. We could cover people who are traditional religious gurus, like Reverend Moon. And we could see, you know, what the differences are or where the connections are. And it also means, and maybe you want to explain this part, Matt, because you often end up talking about this with people, but it means that we could cover someone, disagree with them, dislike them, but they wouldn't score highly because they might be a terrible person in so many ways. They might be a complete polemical partisan, but mm. they don't do the secular guru things. And this is a thing which people constantly seem to not entirely grasp. Yeah, yeah, true. And yeah, so we're interested in a thing called discriminant validity, which is to make sure that our concept you know, is specific to the thing that we care about. And while we know it's got some Venn diagrammatic overlap between things like public intellectuals or traditional religious leaders, political pundits, people like that, we wanted to make sure that it was actually specific. So in terms of people that we're interested in covering, willing to cover, we cover that whole joint union of all of those Venn diagrams, but only some of them will actually be part of that subset of secular gurus. And, you know, most of the properties that we'll talk about in terms of the gurometer of the secular gurus, it has a negative kind of balance to it, I suppose. Not every characteristic of it is negative, but I think we generally feel that it's intrinsically unhelpful in the society that we live in to claim the mantle of intellectual authority, but to be actually doing something quite different, basically appealing to other kinds of motivations or where their appeal is based on other things apart from actual evidence, logical coherence, and you know it being well put together. And one of those distinctions from another category, which is closely related, and I think important to stress, I talked about this recently at a talk I gave about this topic, is that public intellectual 
might seem a close fit to what we're talking about. Why it is not is that public intellectuals are people that tend to profess specialist knowledge. However, typically their knowledge is positioned within or being consistent with a broader academic, scientific, or technological field of knowledge. The secular gurus, by contrast, are polymathic and iconoclastic. They are positioning their insights as unique, broad-ranging, controversial, that they go against or are in direct competition with traditional theories, right, from established disciplines. I think you and I share a certain delight when we do our homework and we discover something interesting and absolutely nobody else gets it Mm -hmm. that would feel bad to most people because they would feel like what am i doing wrong why does nobody else understand this point to you and me that feels good it is to know that you have achieved something you have discovered something and that nobody else can even recognize it gives you some sort of sense of how far ahead you might be and in this way, they're almost by definition antagonistic to established approaches or institutions and very often the academic fields that might have birthed them. And where they reference a particular expertise, it is usually used as simply the justification that allows them to go like spread yeah. their ideas widely. So they're, they're not constrained in the way that most public intellectuals are by saying, well, I don't know enough to comment about that. Yeah, that's right. They don't stand on the shoulders of giants. They are the giants. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, the Galileo gambit is a relevant thing to reference here because that is the kind of character that we're talking about. Not somebody that seems themselves as making an incremental contribution to a discipline, somebody who believes that they've revolutionized the field, but they just haven't been recognized as such. And the tricky thing is, of course, is that certain of our gurus would honestly believe that they are like an Einstein figure or a Charles Darwin figure. It is time to do battle with the oppressive structures that have been used to silence new ideas. If in my family, I assert that there might be as many as three revolutionary Nobel quality ideas in one clutch, how many ideas might there be suppressed if that is actually true? And a little bit like conspiracy theories, sometimes those figures do exist. They do come along from time to time. Right. But what am I trying to say? We... <laughs> I can help you out, man. We don't, you out. We don't believe them. <laughs> no, no, that's not it. Although that's true, we don't. But so the amount of people claiming to have revolutionary insight that is going to completely transform a field dramatically outstrips the amount of people who actually do that. And the way that you can spot the difference is when somebody revolutionizes a field, they don't need to tell you that they've done that because... History records it, that they were vindicated, that everybody else was proven wrong. And that's very rare. And often when you look at the like the popularized version of the story, it's not as simple as presented. But if somebody is declaring themselves as a revolutionary figure, somebody whose new approach to evolution is going to upend the field, but they haven't actually had any impact on the field 
and their primary output is a podcast where they talk about culture war topics and anti-vaccine issues week in and week out. Yes, they may in the future turn out to be completely vindicated and you, the Bill and Ted future where there's statues of them as a great man, I'll put money that that is not what happens. And they entered the annals as a pundit, a wannabe guru online that is not remembered in the annals of history, except as notable conspiracy theorists or a real revolutionary guru. You don't need to tell people that. Other people will introduce you as such. Okay. All right. So let's, um, that's enough summarizing overview stuff. Let's get into the Garometer itself. And we're going to talk about a few different things, the different facets of the Garometer. One thing to say at the beginning, if, I don't know how much time we'll have to actually talk about the interrelationships between these things. But what I'd just like to say to people is that they are there. These things tend to be correlated with each other. The reasons why are kind of interesting, still a matter of psychological anthropological inquiry even things like for instance the personality facet of narcissism is a strong correlate of belief in conspiracy theories this is just one example of these interrelationships so this is not just a random grab bag of stuff these different facets tend to be correlated with each other and there are probably good reasons why they tend to co-occur in the gurus and to some degree in the kind of people that are attracted to them yeah, and so we've identified 10 characteristics that we tongue-in-cheek refer to as a gorometer. And after every episode on the Patreon feed, in addition to the episode we release, we rank the gurus from 1 to 5, or score them, sorry, on a scale from 1 to 5 for each of these 10 attributes or characteristics that we have noticed as being recurrent amongst the secular guru set. And it's also true to say that if you score highly on this, it is not good because the secular guru concept is not a very positive concept overall. It is technically possible that you could be a secular guru who is doing no harm in the world and is just advocating for people to be better, but because of the personality characteristics like the narcissism and grievance mongering and so on, it would be hard for that to be the case. Um, so it's scoring higher on our 10 characteristics. If you're at the tip top, it generally wouldn't be a good thing. And if you're low down, it generally would be a good thing. But as previously noted, this does not mean that us liking you mean that you will score low and us disliking you mean that you will score high. Overall, there is a correlation there because we don't like people who bullshit and who self-aggrandize and are paranoid conspiracy theorists. But Manipulative. Hmm. Yeah, but it, it, you could be terrible in a whole bunch of ways which don't put you into that category. Or you could be good and do some of this. So hmm. there's a correlation between the amount that Matt and I to academic science-minded people are likely to enjoy your output and your level of secular guru-ness. But that's not the characteristic. If it was, Dave Rubin would be at the tip top because he's a despicable human, but he's not a top-tier guru. Not a particularly accomplished guru, no. Okay. 
that's good. So let's start with the first one. Uh, I don't like this one because it's galaxy brained, galaxy brainness. So this comes from that viral meme of the you know mind expanding cosmos stuff. The guy in the turtleneck sweater. That says a lot of it. This is someone that presents ideas that they present as being too profound for the average mind to comprehend, right? And important, this is different from Einstein talking about quantum mechanics or general relativity, which many of us might not be able to comprehend very well. This is stuff like Deepak Chopra, like linking quantum mechanics to some sort of special waves of consciousness or something. It's superficially intellectually rarefied, but it, you know, in closer examination, it actually makes little sense. So one of the things that tends to be an indicator of it is when a figure is linking together these disparate concepts, saying all you need to know to really understand the differences between men and women is that whatever, men hunt and women gather. All you need to know is that you know men have two modes. They have a parasitic mode and a symbiotic mode or something. There's this sort of linking of concepts which might be appealing superficially, but really have nothing much to it underneath. So Jordan Peterson famously linked the social behavior of lobsters to understand male behavior and their dominance hierarchies or whatever. Brett Weinstein, one of our favorites, used evolutionary theory to help understand why the Nazis chose to invade Russia in Operation Barbarossa. And there's heaps more of stuff you could draw from the world of Wu, linking secret talismans and ancient civilizations to to aliens or linking electromagnetic frequencies and fields to something about balancing your health or whatever. It's this galaxy brain thing. It's basically you don't restrict yourself to providing some degree of information or insight on a specific topic. What you're doing is you're stepping back and you're linking together things from all over the shop to create this tapestry of meaning that covers kind of everything, life, the universe, and everything. Yeah. So if you don't like the term galaxy brainness, you can do what I did in the talk I gave recently on the topic and call it polymorphic ability or claimed polymorphic ability. And alongside all the things that Matt mentioned, there tends to be a dismissal of restriction on expertise that people suggesting that you should stay in your lane or whatever are doing so just to chain you down and an exaggeration of their own competence in disparate fields. Mm. It might also be related to an overestimation of how many paradigms you can run simultaneously all at once. 70, 90 (laughs) have been (laughs) known to be claimed by the gurus. While we're at it, I'm usually running, I don't know, 70 or 90 distinct paradigms simultaneously all the time. And there's many. And, I, and the idea is not to try to collapse them down to a single master paradigm, but actually to allow each one of them to have the particular piece that they're holding, just like eyes and ears. Say, okay, cool. And some of the characters we've covered have lent into this in a really obvious kind of way. For instance, Yudkowsky, you know, talking about how he mastered and he rattled off about 14 different disciplines and how he's, yeah. you know, he's linking them all together. People like to claim that they've, like Jordan Peterson claimed that he was an expert on climate science. He'd read all the books. 200 books. books. Possibly. It's not so obvious. I spent quite a bit of time going through the relevant literature. I, I read about 200 books on ecological, what would you call it, on ecology and 
economy when I worked for the UN for about a two-year period, and it's not so obvious what's happening, just like with any complex system. Yeah. yeah. So there are often these very easy claims to polymathic abilities, but often, you know, it's little more than learning a few buzzwords and rattling them off in quick succession. Yes. And this is not to say that there aren't people with interdisciplinary knowledge. There aren't legitimate grand theories that exist. But what we are talking about is not that. And in a lot of these uh, categories, it's that they're operating in the shadow of intellectual giants, right? Or people that genuinely had polymathic abilities. But even even in those cases, I think that in the more that you look into the history of geniuses, the more that you see the cracks develop over time. And there are often figures who legitimately were insightful polymathic geniuses who later in life become cranks, or it's a known thing, so-called Nobel disease. So yeah, the polymathic, clean polymathic ability, galaxy brainness, that's characteristic number one. Characteristic... Oh, sorry. Mm. Oh, that was just sorry. This is a sidetrack, but it, you know, it just struck me. We've never talked about this, Chris, but you know, you just reminded me that actually a lot of big advances in like genuine intellectual advances do involve like a linking together of somewhat disparate fields. So, you know, electromagnetism, yeah, like mm. unification, understanding that electricity and magnetism were two sides of the same coin. And a guy called James Clerk Maxwell figured that out. And so this does happen from time to time. So I, th- I think the underlying theme of these facets in the gyrometer is that these are false versions of the real thing. Like the I'm- real thing is hard to come by, happens extremely rarely. Someone like Maxwell is operating within a well-established paradigm and is often getting help <laughs> from colleagues and is yeah. communicating and writing with colleagues, all of whom or most of whom usually very quickly recognize what they've achieved when they achieve it. This is very different from what how gurus operate and what and gurus there, claim. There tends to be an output as well, right? Which is not just long form podcasts. podcasts. Um, that yeah. so that that's a distinction as well. But okay, so the next characteristic is anti-establishment sentiment. Now, again, you'll find this in a lot of different areas, but you will find it in an extreme version in most of the secular gurus that we look like. And this is not just saying that institutions have flaws and that you you shouldn't just trust everything that you hear on the news or from politicians. It's that the mainstream is almost entirely corrupted, always wrong. It can't deal with the real issues. Institutions are lying to us. And when the mainstream is right, it's right for the wrong reason. So maybe climate change is happening, but it's not for the reason that climate scientists say. And a lot of this is to set up the the gurus, the secular gurus, as an alternative source of epistemic authority and an alternative source of knowledge. Well, this is the thing. Who can still <laughs> dance on the A-frame roof or avoid the snowplow? Yes. We don't... We, so yes, not, not very many people Well, this can. is the thing. Is it really yeah. down to... 20 people and you know them all because 18 of them live uh, in the modern version of your Rolodex. (laughs) Well, 
Because it's the people who can speak in public. And I really do think this has to do with institutions. Mm. And you can see this explicitly from the fact that they often set out to establish alternative institutions, usually ones that orbit around them. Jordan Peterson creating the Jordan Peterson Academy, the University of Austin at Texas University, around the heterodox figures, which have yet to release any <laughs> continuous courses. And there's currently a thing called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Welcome aboard the Ark, which Jordan Peterson and various other figures are promoting as you know an alternative to the World Economic Forum and the, the UN. And we'll see how well that pans out. Yeah. It's hard to over-exaggerate how strong anti-establishment sentiment is. And then you get on to the institution one, which is that nobody, as you know, nobody in an institution now can tell the truth. And it's slightly worse than that, which is that... I'm used to my saying stuff like that and then people calling me an extremist. Do you believe what you just said? Yes, I mean, I, I don't all, doubt that there my, is my, some... My, my phrase is almost everybody, particularly in an institution, is lying about almost everything almost all the time. That's where I believe we've gotten to. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not a difficult thing to prove because they are pretty upfront about <laughs> their contempt for the corrupt, totally compromised institutions. And they're also pretty upfront about the alternatives they're providing. So anybody who tells me to listen to the experts, what planet are you on? What planet are you on that listening to experts has worked out really well for you? And they often speak explicitly about wanting to connect directly with whatever young men or whatever to to sort of educate them in the real science or the real real knowledge directly. And hey, wait a minute, am I an expert? Uh, am I an expert on, let's say, human motivation within a large organization? I kind of am, in my own way. If you're the uh, author of the Dilbert comic, you are kind of an expert on human motivation in large organizations, but I don't have a degree in anything like that, so I won't make that claim. I, I think, Chris, though, like for me, uh, like a theoretically satisfying aspect of this anti-establishment posturing positioning is that it's almost a logical necessity. Like you, mm. I if you want to be a guru... In, in, in the modern world, you can't just be like a normal public intellectual, a normal historian, a normal philosopher, a normal scientist, no. because you will be one of thousands and yeah. you will be saying things that are kind of boring <laughs> to, yeah. to, to most people. Like they, in, in order to be an, alter, an influencer, to, to attract attention online, you need to take the contrarian stance. And, you know, we've seen in modern social media how well that works in terms of building a following. Yeah. So the third characteristic, and I think this is one of the most central features that we've identified because we have 10 features and we haven't weighted them in the, the kind of scoring that we do, but it is the case that there are some features which I think are more core. And this one is at the core and that is self-aggrandizement and narcissism. I don't think everybody's the same. I think I'm healthier than most people because I exercise on a regular basis. I take vitamins every fucking day. I'm in the sauna almost every fucking day. I, I do a lot of shit. My body works well. 
and I don't think my body and a normal person's body is the same. And they'll go, you're wrong, and you're, gonna be, you're in danger, you're in trouble. And then I get COVID, and then I take some medication that I've researched, and I turn out to get better like that. This is kind of self-explanatory, but basically exhibiting a sense of grandiosity and inflated idea of your own self-importance, touting your unique perspective and how revolutionary it is, responding to any, mostly preferring probably positive attention, but any attention <laughs> really will do to provide some, some psychological stroke. And one indicator of this is that you can see the guru figures who are often hugely successful people. They've got massive audiences, they've best-selling books, they're sought out to commentate on various issues, well, at least the more successful versions of them, but yet they're often stating how many people watch their talks, how many downloads things get, and referencing it in a way which suggests there's like a pathological attention to that detail. And basically it reflects that they are very much enamored with their own ideas, very bad at assessing them objectively, and often also believing that they were gifted with special insight from an early age, which was often misdiagnosed as learning disabilities. So they, they have a special way of seeing the world and they are special people. Yeah, and we don't have time to get into the study of manipulative narcissism is really well established. And there, it's really well understood all the different behaviors that are red flags in this. But just to note a couple, like one of them is being like extremely sensitive to praise and criticism and also being someone who tries to manipulate others by doling out selective praise and criticism. Another aspect of people with a narcissistic personality issues is that just tremendous thin skin, that mm. extreme reactivity. We tend to see these characteristics in the people we cover. The final thing I'll say, Chris, is that, again, it's theoretically quite satisfying that narcissism does crop up so often in these figures because you almost have to have mm. an overblown sense of self-confidence in order to inhabit this role. Like to put on a toga or a white sheet and stand up on top of the mountain and to broadcast to everyone that you've heard the word of God and it is this requires the kind of self-belief <laughs> that most typical people don't generally have. So you brought up there, Matt, this sense that you are an aggrieved person, right, who's constantly being persecuted and attacked by others. And that leads neatly to another characteristic that we identify, grievance mongering. So this can sometimes be indicated by that you know all of the person's enemies because they constantly mention them. They regard the media, institutions, politicians, so on, all to be targeted against them and to unfairly represent them. I think another aspect of this that is really common amongst the gurus is that the, their critics are all arguing in bad faith. They're all offering low-quality criticism of their ideas. That's the level at which the commentary in general attacks the ideas of others. Are there any critiques that you think were, have been valuable or been useful? Very few. There have been a few, but very few. Do you want to name any of them? Well, 
it, it's really been pretty slim pickings. And they are really heroic, see themselves as heroic figures fighting back against this kind of onslaught of bad faith criticism and relentless attacks from the media who are trying to shut them down for all the reasons that we just talked about. And this conveniently gives an explanation for why they may lack mainstream success. So it may be the case that they are hugely successful like Jordan Peterson, but even if they aren't, there's a ready-made narrative for why their success is less than it could be because you have, combined with narcissism, it will never be enough. Yeah, it's striking, isn't it? The degree to which some of our gurus seem to be obsessed with the, like the number of likes and retweets that they're getting on social media. And they seem to be absolutely certain that some nefarious forces out there are throttling them or suppressing them and preventing the word from getting out. On Twitter, the thumb of whatever it is that guides YouTube, their thumb is still on the scale, not only at YouTube, but we feel it at Twitter. And I don't think that's Musk's doing. I think there's something deeply embedded in his machine that still Mm -hmm. uh, would like to keep us from reaching an audience, even though we've been vindicated across the board with respect to what what we uh, understood. But in any it's case, deep corporate, deep corporate is the counterpart to the deep state. I think it exists. It's part of this managerial bureaucracy that spans the public sector, the private sector, the associate deans of God knows what at universities. It's, 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 a, it's a separate kind of DNA. They looked to Elon Musk for a long time. And well, when Elon Musk gets in, then I'll be free of this, of these suppressive forces. And, um, but of course that, that the like the psychological disorder doesn't go away just when Elon Musk buys Twitter. I have a great example of that because I don't know if you've seen, but Cat Turd Two is very upset at that he has not been part of the, you know the monetization payouts, and he's now like you know malingering to his audience about how all those people getting payouts it's just because they're lickspittles of Elon, but he wouldn't do that. But, you know, he has been doing that for months and months. So it's just that it's always a kind of fragile truce amongst the gurus whenever they're fawning after someone, right? And uh, it it can very quickly disintegrate. And look, this is, you know, we're going to talk about conspiracism and cultish dynamics, but, you know, this narrative of grievance is something that has a lot of overlap with those features of the Gurometer too. Um, Cults notoriously have a sense of grievance with the broader society, you know, that they very quickly tend to get the idea that everyone's out to get them and it's us versus them. There's an army of sock puppets Mm. that erupts in the replies to anything I do. And its purpose is to create the impression that I have been discredited and that anybody who doesn't see through the obvious bullshit that I am putting into the world is themselves revealing their own mental deficiency. You're doing something interesting. You just automatically have people trying to tear you down, looking for vulnerabilities, pretending, you know, frankly, pretending that they are more people than they actually are, showing up Mm -hmm. with anonymous accounts, trying to create a chorus where there's one person, you know, trying to exploit something. And that us versus them mentality fosters those toxic in-group, out-group dynamics, as well as that puts, you know, when it's personalized in the form of a guru, it obviously puts them in like a heroic role, someone who's standing up to all of these forces. And in terms of the conspiracy theories, again, we see, you know, strong 
themes of grievance there at the the authorities, the them that are out there that are that are hiding the truth and doing these terrible things to us. So it's something that appeals to the conspiratorial mindset too. There's literature on this where it's a way for them to feel special and to feel better about their own lives. Yeah. And so you mentioned the tendency to encourage cultish dynamics. And this is not just a pejorative. We, When we are referencing this, we're talking about the fact that the gurus often establish these very strong binary in-group and out-group categories, right? And usually it's their followers and supporters are the good, moral, wise people. And their out-group are malicious, bad faith critics who just want to tear everyone down. So this serves as, along with a host of other behavioral patterns, to emotionally manipulate followers in order to get them to uh, protect the guru or sometimes the launch attacks at people that might be criticizing the guru. But in, in many respects, it's things like parasocial relationships are unavoidable when consuming someone's content or with the internet the way it is. But there are people that cultivate and make use of those relationships to a greater and lesser extent. And gurus really strongly cultivate them by using like excessive flattery. Here, you know, it kind of, we've wandered into what I think is a place of boldness. You, you know, I'm not sugarcoating my thoughts for a couple of reasons. One, I think my thoughts are important. I think your thoughts are important. So I don't want to sugarcoat them to you. And, and, and two, um, I think you're, you're too intelligent. You know, you know, if I'm bullshitting you, playing it safe, I don't want to like risk people like not liking me. So let me just say bullshit. Nope, I respect you more than that. I want to communicate with you at real levels. Often referencing like how their followers are like close friends to them. And then similarly presenting themselves as wounded and vulnerable and in need of protection. It's kind of an interesting paradox because you have them as the all-conquering polymorphic genius, but they're also in need of protection and constantly under attack. And the guru figure who does this most often recently, Jordan Peterson used to be the master of it, but I, I would point out Lex Friedman as somebody who's engaged in that. And I just have a reference. It's not the one that he did today, but he said, uh, he posted this on his Reddit. I'll have several different difficult conversations this year and next. I'll get attacked from all sides. I now understand that this is the way for anyone who seeks to empathize and understand in a divided world. I hope you know my heart and will still support me. I'll need it. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It's funny. It's funny you cited him because I was about to mention Lex because he was on my mind too. I mean, people often cite Lex's that he's just all about love and he's just trying to increase the amount of love and understanding in the world. But he also like ruthlessly <laughs> cuts off <laughs> communication with anyone who is not expressing a hundred percent love back at him. Unless and, my, unless they're famous. Ah, of course. Yeah. So he, yeah, you know, course. destiny or those kind of people, the, he'll tolerate a level of disagreement, but if they're not a figure with a high enough profile, no, 
if gone. they're a, if they're a normal person on Reddit, they're gone. So yeah, people cite Lex's kind of kumbaya love love is the answer thing as a, a example of how he's really a good guy and not all that bad. But to be honest, I've always seen these elements of cultishness in it. It's and it's it's particularly in Lex's case, it's particularly clumsy. It's not even it's not even particularly It's at the surface. But it's yeah, a, it's, it's it's very effective for the amount of people that kind of criticize Lex and kind of see through it. Just look at the comments that he hasn't blocked. It's loads of people saying, We love you, Lex. We know that you're what's in your heart. We need people like you in the world and so on. Mm. And like the thing which he tweeted out today said, I will speak with everyone and I will get attacked, derided, and slandered for it. But I believe in the power of long form empathetic conversation to help discover our common humanity including the good and the evil we are all capable of. I know I'm underqualified and underskilled for these conversations, so I'll often fall short, as I do in all aspects of my life, but I'll work hard to improve and will never, ever give in to cynicism. It's a beautiful encapsulation, but this is in reference to Lex conducting fawning interviews with no pushback with Benjamin Netanyahu most recently. And a host of controversial figures where he gives very mild pushback, or I think his strongest is probably with Kanye West, who was spouting overt anti-Semitism. But even in that conversation, the main thing that Lex focused on was when Kanye said he didn't trust Lex. That's the thing which he found most hurtful and returned to at the end of the conversation. But I got to tell you, I have to be honest. Um, I don't. This is silly because you don't know me. But it, it hurt when you say you don't trust me. You kind of lost me. I don't think anyone's ever said that to me. I don't know, man. Fuck that. You're, I'm not. I don't care about uh, views or clickbait or any of that bullshit. Um, I just thought you were one of the great, greatest artists ever. It'd be cool to talk to you. And I just, I feel like you got pain you're working through. I never had anyone say that to me. I, I maybe I'm just being a mess about it. I guess. That's fucked up, though. But maybe it's not. Maybe you shouldn't trust it. But I just haven't had that experience. I, yeah. Do you think I would trust anybody at this point in my life? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. I hear you. And uh, I, it's it's also kind of good to see how much strength you got. You're not broken by any of this. But it's that wounded bird pose of, I'm doing good and I'm going to be attacked. Like Jesus. It almost sounds like Jesus. Mm. And... It's there's no mention of accurate criticism. The bit at the end, you might say that, well, he's admitting he's at fault, but notice that he he didn't at the beginning say, you know, I'll be legitimately critiqued for making mistakes or being too soft. No, he said, I'll be attacked, derided and slandered. So, yeah, that's good. That's Um, cultish dynamics, encouraging them. Okay, well... We haven't done pseudo profound bullshit. One of my favorite domains of the grammar, Chris. I don't have my notes here. What have you got? <laughs> well, I'll, this is usually paired with a tendency to make use of neologisms. Not always, but inventing your own terminology is something that gurus like to do. And pseudo profound bullshit is it sounds pejorative, which it is, but it it is also a term from the psychology literature, and it refers to language that appears profound but once you consider it critically 
it's saying something very mundane, something which looks deep, but is actually quite shallow. I think that an aspect of it can be where you're referencing technical terminology that sounds very complicated. You're making reference to these abstract or obscure theories, often referencing the particular names which most people would know of the relevant theorists as well. But you're not doing so actually to kind of explain the theory and elucidate some point that you really need to reference the theory. No, the reason for signaling it or for referencing it is to reflect back on how much you know and how great your technical expertise is. That it's it's almost hard for you to sink down to a normal level to communicate with people because you're just bustling with so many high-level concepts. If it breaks, is there an unconsciousness that tries to grab more here and do stuff here? Mm, also not good. And by the way, the arrow goes that way too. Does it, you know, does it parasize, parasitize or predate the integrity over here? I would say something like that, like something that actually has the capacity to disseminate a viral degradation of individual and collective integrity would be something to be very, very like super careful of, like keep it in, in, uh, uh, tight containers. Did I miss anything with that, Matt? What else would you put in the pseudo-profound bucket? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's right. Look, it's different from the other domains we talked about because pseudo-profound bullshit is really about the language, the sort of syntactic structure. As you said, the buzzwords, the jargon that people are using, stringing together words and sentences that give the appearance of saying something profound and meaningful, but actually are not really saying anything much at all. An example could be, as beings of light, we are local and non-local, time-bound and timeless actuality and possibility. You know, that sounds okay if you don't analyze it carefully, but if you think about it, it doesn't really mean anything. Deepak Chopra is the ultimate coiner of pseudo-profound bullshit. He said things like imagination is inside exponential space-time events. Noticing he's referencing some sort of physics type stuff there, but he's connecting it to imagination. It makes no sense. So yeah, I mean, what what else to say about pseudo? Well, I'd highlight that, like, although the term originally is associated with Deepak Chopra and the the kind of quantum woo proponents, and you do find that amongst the secular gurus on occasion, uh, I think their variety is a little bit different because it will often be referencing like evolutionary theorists or psychologists or. Uh, it can also be seen in just the way that they respond to certain ideas. I suspect if you did the statistics properly, I suspect that that medicine, independent of public health, kills more people than it saves. I suspect if you if you factor in phenomena like the development of superbugs in hospitals, for example, that overall the net consequence of hospitals is negative. Now that's just a guess, and but it's and and it could easily be wrong. But it, it also could not be wrong. And that is a good example. Or a good, That's where my thinking about what we don't know has taken me with regards to the critique of what we do. The fact that it's even plausible is a stunning Well, fact. you know, medical I mean, error is the third leading cause of death. Yep. You know, and that doesn't take into account the generation of superbugs, for example. And then they ramble on now. That to me is taking the language of recognizing profundity. But what you've 
just issued for is uninformed bullshit. But if somebody reacts as if it's a deep profundity, it creates the impression that something important was being transmitted. And the sense makers are often extremely guilty mm. of this. Yeah, the sense makers. Yeah, just go listen to the sense making episode. You'll hear so many examples of it. I, for a bit of fun, once Chris, I I asked GPT four to look at a few of Eric Weinstein's tweets and tell me whether or not they were pseudo profound bullshit or not. And well, he could say whether it was right or wrong, but it, it had the <laughs> same assessment that I did on every one of them. What well, one of the tweets I gave it was this one. Eric Weinstein tweeted: When you first realized that in the summer of '69. Brian Adams was not yet 10 years old, you are supposed to extrapolate that the world pretty routinely speaks in coded messages. Wow. <laughs> you know, just mull over that for a little while and see whether or not yeah. uh, you think that's bullshit. I'd, I'd also add to it, Matt, that part of the reason that the gurus are so competent in this area is that they tend to have very high levels of verbal fluency. They're able to speak in an autodidactic kind of way, just stream of consciousness, often without the usual verbal tics that inhabit normal mortal speech. And that content is liberally peppered with obscure references, technical jargon, and so on. But it it's their fluency and their, often their use of metaphor or metaphorical language that, that also marks them out. And we often see in the content that in lots of occasions, the gurus just replace argument with a metaphor. They just say, it's like, and they, they give a metaphor and they describe the metaphor in great depth, but they haven't actually demonstrated that the argument is valid. They've just talked about things in a metaphorical plane, and then they move on yep. to the next topic. The major point in favor of the debunkers is the fact that we've never gotten good evidence. I've seeded that to you from the beginning. Now, the thing that I'm surprised by mm-hmm. is it feels to me like you're trying to take a twin-size fitted sheet of explanation and fit it over a king-size mystery, yeah. and the corner keeps popping off, and you're pointing out that you can fit one or two corners. And my, my claim is, is that I think that that ship sort of sailed and, and well, I don't mean to be rude about it. But I, wait, 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 yeah. let me just get it out. I think that we're still in range of some serious disinformation. And yeah, yeah, that is, it's not exactly what the pseudo profound bullshit concept captures, but it's, it's definitely in a related family. I think it is helpful to have a bit of a broader, more inclusive sort of approach with this pseudo profound bullshit thing. Cause like you said, it is, has got a lot to do with that facility with language. They are well-educated people, very loquacious. And all of us use the form of language as kind of an indicator. That it's not just is, functional. Yeah, that's right. We, it's, it's performative as well. And so, you know, if you do things like reference technical scientific terms, if you're using, if you're mentioning equations, if yeah. you're, if you're using this kind of academic language, then all of that stuff is taking as signifiers that, that something meaningful is being said. It's saying something that's straightforward, quite, quite straightforward in a very complicated way, in a way that I guess encourages people to think, well, this is profound. This is saying something true. Yeah. And I think 
that pseudo profundity maybe goes neatly, Matt, with the tendency for people to present themselves as possessing revolutionary theories. Well, this is a nuller feature that we identify, and we've referenced it already, but the kind of claims to have created game-changing, paradigm-shifting theories and insights that have almost always not been recognized due to suppressive forces and conspiracies. The figure that I think is most readily invoked here, as discussed earlier, is Galileo, a, a revolutionary thinker who was not recognized by the authorities, but was later vindicated. And that is the motif that most of the gurus have. And this is not always true. Not all of the secular gurus have their own revolutionary theories, but those that do tend to score more highly in other factors as well. Yeah, and some obvious examples of that would be Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying with their revolutionary evolutionary paradigm, which is subtly different from all the other evolutionary I think that's paradigm. primarily Brett's lineage <laughs> theory. <laughs> and, and the telomeres, which he claimed was his insight was the key for the Nobel Prize. True. I'm also thinking of their book where they sketch out a alternative The Hunter Gallery's Guide to the 21st Century. Century. Yeah. yeah. Now, Eric Weinstein, of course, has come up with geometric unity. That's an obvious revolutionary theory that has not yet been recognized. Um, Jordan and- Peterson has a couple every day for, for, for <laughs> almost every topic that he mentions. And, I- and someone like Elon Musk, but he doesn't fit it perfectly right, but he is someone who presents himself as basically single-handedly figuring out brain surgery, artificial intelligence, space flight, you name it. So he he has revolutionary stuff that he creates. Yeah. Yeah. And you can also see it in various other figures like Gadsad, right? The claim still founded a whole bunch of Evolutionary consumption. That's right. Nassim Taleb has a special understanding of low probability statistics, non-normal distributions, which, you know, is basically much better than anything that exists in conventional statistics. I Um, think Abram X. Kendi, although we might talk a little bit about the distinctions there, but having your own bespoke definition or applying a paradigm in a novel way, I think counts. And I would say that various ideas that Kendi has advanced potentially fall into the revolutionary theories area, though he often does situate it within an existing field. And if you listen to his talks, he's often claiming it isn't revolutionary. It's just an established theory that he's now expounding on to a popular audience. But in in terms of his outputs, he is broadly regarded as having been responsible for revolutionary theories. And I, I think he does lean into that. So Mm. that would be an example of someone not from kind of IDW space. Yep. Now, I think one of our final ones we haven't covered yet is the Cassandra complex. So this is the warning of an impending doom. 
And I think it's an important feature that, look, again, a bit like Galaxy, or Galaxy Brain, this revolutionary theories, you don't see it in all gurus, but when you do see it, it tends to be not a very good sign. A little bit like cults often have like a doomsday type scenario. The mm. world is going to end shortly. You have to join the cult. You have to do these particular things to be one of the saved, or at least to be aware of what's going on. Conspiracy theories have a similar property. So Matt, this, I, this I feel is like the emotional hook that can be important for really getting the guru game on. I've got a question for you. You mm. referred to it as the Cassandra complex, but wasn't Cassandra vindicated in the end in the, the myth? So is this a badly named? Why? What, what, what's going on here? <laughs> yes. Well, perhaps, but the... No, the no, problem- it's not. <laughs> I was trying to set you up. Complex. Cassandra complex. Yes, like, yes. And someone who- be- believing that you're Cassandra. Yes, um, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and also Cassandra was someone who she was doomed to never be believed, right? To have to be able to see the future, right? To know about the terrible things were happening, to be trying to tell everyone, but not to be believed by most, right? Or maybe all. So yeah. I think it's helpful for understanding the gurus too, because that's how they present it as well, right? And- the mainstream, the inst- institutions are blundering on towards certain doom, listen to me, uh, I've got my finger on the pulse, I know what's going on, and this is what's broken, this is what's failing, catastrophe is upon us unless we do X, right? Well, what we do is often a little bit vague, but <laughs> what you should definitely do is join listen to Join their Patreon. <laughs> yeah, definitely join their Patreon, listen to all of their podcasts, yeah. Yeah, so believing that they have a superior ability to detect where the corrupt society is heading um, and and making claims that they have correctly predicted things and have like a a long history of accurate predictions is Mm. regardless of how how accurate that claim is something that you see um, a lot uh, related to this. And you and I spoke directly about critical race theory. Right. Um, I think... We tried to warn people at that time. Yeah. Like what was coming, how it was going to come in, the fact that it was everywhere and in everything. And the recent experience with COVID, the vaccines, all of that stuff, you saw many, many instances of Cassandra complex there. People claiming about the, um, about how everyone had got it all wrong. Terrible things are afoot. Terrible things are going to happen. You know, the vaccines are going to have these side effects that could be killing us all in 10 or 20 years. You name it, right? There was there were so many um, um, doomsday Cassandra scenarios floating around there. And this belief that the world is corrupted, I think it connects them with another feature which we haven't emphasized yet, but which I think is core to the, the whole concept that we're interested in, is the mongering of conspiracies, conspiracy mongering. And this can't be overstated because it really does form something of a tight connection with the narcissism and the grievance mongering. And and if you believe that the world is corrupted um, and constantly invoke conspiracies, that by definition, you're kind of a conspiracy theorist and conspiracy prone. And and essentially, everything can be uh, explained through conspiracies Uh, and and, uh, as with all conspiracy theorists it isn't just that you're positing that there are things that are hidden in this world there are things which governments lie about Uh, it's rather that everything fits into your explanatory framework it's there's a kind of hyperactive pattern 
recognition and a circular and self-reinforcing logic, self-sealing logic yeah. that constantly, if the mainstream gives evidence that lends even a little bit of credence to your idea, that vindicates you. If they deny it, that shows it because they're repressing the truth. And if there is evidence missing or contradictory evidence, well, that's just showing how good the conspiracy is at concealing the truth. They would go yeah. that far. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the conspiracism is like the crazy glue that holds the whole mad box of spiders together because it neatly makes it a self-sealing belief system. So I've discovered new truths about physics, but nobody seems to be recognizing that. I'm just telling it. well, that's because it's being suppressed as a conspiracy. I know that the vaccines are definitely going to be causing terrible harm, et cetera. The authorities aren't doing anything about it. The authorities are saying that it's fine. All of these people that are supposed scientists or experts in the field, well, that's because there's a conspiracy. They're all against us. They're criticizing us. They're saying that we're grifters and that we're bad people. Well, that's because they're trying to shut down the voices that are trying to point out the conspiracy. Like It is the thing that makes it a self-sealing little intellectual bubble. I think my, I, you know, I got lost somewhere when we went through what uh, number were we on, which is why I kept referencing characteristic, this characteristic and so on. But I am certain now that the last number, <laughs> number 10, is excessive profiteering. And the excessive is important to emphasize because making profit, being wealthy is not the issue, but it's an excessive focus on extracting monetary benefit from their audience and influence and uh, a kind of hyper-capitalism almost, like a willingness to use their expertise to sell products and services that might otherwise be surprising, for example, in public intellectuals, right? Second, I like the unabashedly shameless capitalist ethos of the Daily Wire crew. They made me a great deal financially, one that offers me essentially unlimited creative freedom and opportunity, and still means that I can use YouTube as I have been to offer free content to a worldwide audience. I've always deemed myself an evil capitalist. I run my own businesses on a for-profit basis. And you will often also see them willing to lend their brand to products. And the interesting thing for me, Matt, about this is that you can do this. You can be a co-founder of a supplement company, which is shilling alpha brain pills and sell the company for hundreds of millions to a multinational company, say like Onnit, being sold the Unilever, Joe Rogan's company. And yet that will not stop you from reeling against the mainstream and the companies that are making profit and the vaccines, right? You are somebody who is already paid a hundred million for the Spotify deal, already living in a mansion, plus his advertisement in every episode, plus his co-finding role in on it and his position at UFC and all. But it's those money-grabbing mainstream authorities. It's Peter Hotez and all of the pharmaceutical shills who are the issue. And now I mention about how much money Rogan and his fellow supplement slingers are raking in hand over foot in a badly regulated market. Yep. Yeah. People call them grifters. And that term is a slur and can be overused. 
But whenever someone's selling penis-enhancing pills and magic super alpha male mind drugs, it's a red flag. That's all we're saying, that maybe their motives here are not quite as pure as they say they are. Should you want to join a monthly conversation on evolution at the Dark Horse podcast, uh, 2R, on the first Sunday of every month, you need only pay the small sum of £212 a month to attend those select Zoom conferences. So, you know, and I I will point out, Matt, because I thought this was an example recently of excessive profiteering that was a little bit surprising. And it's from someone who I actually think in most other characteristics actually doesn't fit the secular guru template that well, better fits the public intellectual template. But did you see Steven Pinker minting NFTs of his ideas? Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, God, that was was terribly cringe. They came, I think it was like $1,000 or whatever to get the NFT, and then you had a Zoom conversation with him or that kind of thing. But that's more akin to like Tony Robbins level uh, profiteering. Why would Stephen Pinker need to do that? (laughs) That's a good example of the emphasis on the excessive, right? Excessive monetization. Lots of people write books, books. they sell the books, they get money from the books. They might get paid an honorarium or something for giving a lecture. You know, people might have a podcast like us, right? And get $2 or $5 or 10 bucks or whatever it is from, from listeners who choose to donate. Or you could be much more wealthy and successful than us. Yes, you could be making a lot of money. Yeah, unlike us, you could be making a lot of money just because a lot of people like you, but you're not excessive. You know, when you are charging people $500 for an audience to, to be part of a you know, a little a little group or you're charging $10,000 for a lecture. Who is that left-wing guru we covered who charged huge um Robin D'Angelo and the Robin D'Angelo. I think both of them are up over $15,000 or something per speech. But this is something that you see in the upper echelons of public intellectual space as That's well, true. right? People, That's- but they do also excessively profit. But often I think it's a pattern of behavior. And you can see people that are excessively profiting from their brand and, and success. Is it Peter McCulloch or Robert Malone that side by side with their anti-vax stuff, they're selling an extraordinarily expensive bespoke alternative yeah. treatment that people are encouraged to take up? That The people that they've convinced to be afraid of the vaccines are then offering this extremely expensive concoction that doesn't work at all. And I would also say often franchising is a <laughs> a cause for concern. Now, it might be that you have a very successful brand, but if your particular thing is that you're this moral-minded public mm. intellectual with a mission exactly. out, and yet you'll just lend your name to business school courses and you know offer yeah. some random input on the course, yeah. but it's very much but, sold in your name, that, yeah. that might be excessive profiteering. Well, it's the mismatch, isn't it, Chris? Like if you run a fast food joint, then franchising is not really a red flag, right? No. But but if you're nominally a public intellectual who is interested in philosophy and in all of the good things, all the stuff that Lex, for instance, says that he really cares about, then doing those kinds of things, there's a mismatch there. And that, I think, is the theme of the Grometer in general which is to say these are people that are presenting themselves as very special public intellectuals with the very best of motives who want nothing 
that to help society and to educate people and inform them and progress the intellectual climate or whatever. A lot of the things we have in our garometer are things that are essentially evidence that they are not quite doing that. Rather, they are giving the impression of doing that while doing something that is much more self-interested or at least, what is it, functional, if not beneficial. Yeah. So to just list them again, we have these 10 characteristics, which we regard as recurrent secular guru characteristics. Polymathic ability, claimed polymathic ability, anti-establishment sentiment, self-aggrandizement and narcissism, grievance mongering, the encouraging of cultish dynamics, conspiracy mongering, the claiming to possess revolutionary theories, Cassandra complex, pseudo-profound bullshit and neologisms, and excessive profiteering, right? And obviously you can see from those when enumerated like that, that there's a lot of negative features in there. Yep. So oh, I just want to say that like, if we cover someone, you should know that this is the stuff that we're looking out for. And a lot of our discussion and commentary is going to be based on that. Our orientation is to this and not on so much of, do we like them? Do we agree with all respects of the things that they're saying? Some people find that we cover someone, they either really like them or they really dislike them. And then they're disappointed that our evaluation is not in the same direction. But what you should be keeping in mind is what we're doing is not assessing, do we agree with them? Do we like them? We're assessing whether or not they fit this barometer. Yeah. And I would also add that we are not perfect. There are going to be times where we are influenced by the fact that we find someone so dislikable and whatnot. We might rate them harsher on, on something than we would someone that we're otherwise more sympathetic to. But one reason that we came up with these characteristics and put it into this barometer format is that after the episode, we typically a day later or, or so record the barometer. And we sit and go through the characteristics one by one, and we give them all a score. And there we do try to apply whether they fit the category well. And we come up with a score. Matt and I don't always agree. Other people could use the same scoring criteria and see what they score people. Yeah. And there's, there's the, obviously, it's not the case that Matt and I's score are the final word. It's just our opinion. And it's also our opinion on the particular content that we covered. So if we covered someone three years ago and they were a bit more measured and they weren't doing some of the more toxic things, they might get a lower score than they would now. But we are not claiming we have to find that person's essence from the score we supply them. We're just saying, based on the content we looked at, and sometimes a broader knowledge that we have of the people, sometimes that creeps in. This is where we would rank them on these 10 characteristics. And so if yeah. you disagree that some of those features are important, fair enough. This is just yeah. what we've seen from looking at the content. Yeah, that's right. If you disagree, hop on Reddit, explain why. Write a paper. Should... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but seriously, it'd be interesting to explain why you think they should have scored higher or lower on, say, pseudo-profound bullshit or something, because that's what you need to be talking to. I mean, to give an example there about people not always scoring highly if we don't like them. I mean, Konstantin Kissin was someone we rated quite recently. Konstantin, you know, I don't think we're big fans <laughs> of Konstantin in general, but we, he scored a one on pseudo-profound bullshit, which is the lowest score he can get because we just did not. That. 
He doesn't do that. So the good thing about the grommeter is it kind of keeps us honest. It forces us to sort of put aside, well, encourages us anyway, <laughs> to put yeah, aside whatever our, our, <laughs> our whatever our biases and stuff and gut feelings. And, you know, it's always going to be kind of subjective, right? When we consider something to be bullshit, someone else doesn't consider it to be bullshit. But, you know, we do the best we can and the grommeter is a helpful framework for us to evaluate people rather than just going on vibes. Yeah, and Matt and I are writing up a paper where, you know, I don't know what percentage done, but we're getting there, where we make this case. We'll submit it to academic journals, hopefully just one, but <laughs> you never know, and we'll, we'll, and we'll see. And, you know, the, then people will undoubtedly disagree or they'll argue specific features should be weighted more heavily or there's something that we haven't considered, and that's that's fine, right? This is just... Like I say, this is our thing that we've noticed in this category that we're looking at. And just again, Matt, to reiterate, so secular gurus, we are saying that they're a contemporary manifestation of an ancient and cross-culturally recurrent functional archetype, and that the secular versions share a whole bunch of characteristics with the spiritual gurus, shamans, prophets, so on, but they're distinguished by their appeal to secular sources of authority and non-supernatural philosophies. And I'm probably maybe a contemporary aspect of it is that the online platforms and ecosystems have helped them to flourish and reach audiences in much the same way as the printing press once did for new religious movements during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation and so on. And, and also the political climate of the growth of populist leaders has aided their rise as well. So, yep. yeah. And we're not, we're not the only one that have noticed this. There's yep. a lot of people that have talked about a golden age of gurus. Helen Lewis had a, a series on it recently. But just remember, we came first. Who's the hipster? When we write the paper, we just demand to be cited. That's all we ask. Citations. Just help Chris's H index. It, it sorely needs it. That's um, right. That's right. That's what's important. Well, that's it. Here endeth the lesson. Everyone knows all about the grommeter now. There'll be no more um, confusions or misunderstandings. So when we say that we're going to cover Chomsky, don't freak out, don't cry, don't break down. Like, you know, first of all, he is clearly a gurish figure for left-wing people. Just look, I often have people respond to me and say, well, Chomsky said this, as if that somehow reflects on me because I'm left-leaning. I'm like, I don't care, right? But obviously that's because for many people, Chomsky is a figure that is cited with reverence. And, yeah. and so he's a potential candidate, but even if he wasn't, if he was a terrible candidate and he didn't really fit the characteristic, like our recent figure we covered, Mick West, we could still read him. <laughs> He'd just score low. So just, you know, calm down. Whoever we announce, maybe they're not going to fit the template well, and that's okay. Don't worry yeah. about it. It's all and right. Maybe, and maybe, maybe Noam Chomsky will fit the template and we'll judge him to be uh, very much a gurish figure. Well, you know. That's Talk the way the cookie shit. crumbles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it is also the case that you could be a secular guru type with a legitimate background and relevant area of expertise where you've made tons of contributions and then you have become a guru figure. Again, see the various Nobel Prize winners who go on to promote pseudoscience and become these kind of puffed up comical 
figures. So yeah, I think social primates are maybe not built for the amount of reverence that is bestowed upon people identified as geniuses. And it takes a very particular kind of person to resist the appeal Mm. to lean into that. So yeah. Very good. All right. Thank you, Chris. This has been fun. Yes. Educational. Yes. It's reminded me we need to get to work on this paper. We will. We'll get it done. I've been working on it. I've been working on it. There's a talk which I gave at a Temple University in Tokyo, which will be online in a a week or two. So, you know, we'll put it somewhere on Twitter in the show notes that nobody reads uh, somewhere. You know, it goes over a bunch of the similar thing, should you want to see that. But uh, yeah, look forward to the exciting Kavanagh and Brown paper. And I will be the first offer because I need those metrics. That's already got his tenure. I need to be there. So just, just bear that in mind. It's an equal contribution, but I, I will be first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Throw a struggling academic at bone, guys. All right. Yeah. All right. Good night. Farewell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>